Amen. Amen. All over the world, pastors are standing before the congregation. And today they're saying, He is risen. That is exactly what the congregation is responding. You're ahead of me. So let's do that together. He is risen. He is risen. He is risen. Amen. Amen. It's hard to imagine staring Jesus right in the eyes and not recognizing that it's Jesus. But that's what's in our text this morning. How's that possible? Well, it happens. It just happens. It happens with people. For example, when Abraham Lincoln was in office, he held office hours. Imagine that. Uh, citizens could come and meet with him and just talk briefly about whatever was on their minds. And one day, a woman came to the White House angry and agitated. And evidently, she did not recognize the 16th president standing before her. She said, I demand to speak to no one lower than the president. To which Lincoln quipped, Madam, I assure you, there is no one lower than the president. But even in our contemporary day, um, in 2002, Tiger Woods was at the British Open. And he tried to enter the clubhouse, but he had left his credentials in his car. And the gatekeeper did not recognize him. Tiger Woods given strict instructions to let no one pass without a badge, Woods was denied admittance. And later, when asked about this, he said, well, this person was just doing their job, and, and I didn't have my badge with me. I'd left it in the car. And, and then, well, how did you get into the clubhouse eventually? And Tiger Woods said, well, I, I finally got in by casually mentioning that I had won the tournament two years earlier. Our scripture today is about someone who stood toe-to-toe with Jesus, yet could not see that it was Jesus. How's that happen? Well, I want to talk about that this morning. And I, I simply want to answer two questions. Question number one is this. What keeps us from seeing Jesus in our lives? Even when he's standing in front of us. What keeps us from seeing Jesus? That's question number one. Question number two is this. What does Jesus do about that? So what keeps us from seeing the Lord? And then what does the Lord do about that? How does he help? Well, regarding the first question, we need to go back up to John chapter 20, verse 1. That's where, that's where the story began where Mary Magdalene went to the tomb of Christ in order to finish preparing his body for burial. Now, the other Gospels speak of several women who went to the tomb that morning, but John's camera kind of zooms in intentionally on Mary. His concern is on Mary. When Jesus was crucified that Friday, she and the others had rushed to embalm Christ's body before the Sabbath's start at sunset. 
And they weren't able to finish, which is why Mary comes early to the tomb that Sunday morning. So you can see her complete devotion to Jesus. She's last at the cross. She's first at the tomb. And Mary arrives and she sees that the stone has been moved. And she panics and she runs to tell Simon, Peter, and John. Grave robbers, grave robbers. Chapter 20, verse 2 says, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have put him. So Peter races to the tomb. Uh, John actually catches up and outruns him, but then stops at the entrance and peers inside. Peter catches up and just barrels right on in the tomb because he's Peter. That's what he does. And verse 6 says that Peter saw the linen cloths lying there. Pause. He saw the linen cloths lying there. The, the, the fabric cocoon surrounding Jesus' body lay undisturbed on the slab. And two New Testament scholars, D.A. Carson and Grant Osborne, conclude Jesus' resurrection body apparently passed through his grave clothes, spices and all, in much the same way he later appeared in a locked room. Oh, and then notice verse 7, the face cloth. So there was the linen cocoon, and then there was the face cloth. Verse 7 says that the face cloth was folded up in a place by itself. Do you understand what John is telling us? <laughs> when Jesus rose that first resurrection morning, he took the time to fold the fabric that had been around his head. <laughs> he took his time. It wasn't like he was running late on Easter morning. He took, his, he took his time, he made his bed, his room was clean. He left the grave clothes behind because he no longer needed them. Praise God. Now, why is John giving us these details? These are details, and details that come to us uh, from a document 2,000 years old. I mean, this is not how, this is not how, you know, fiction writers wrote 2,000 years ago. What, it, what, what are we seeing here? We're seeing eyewitness testimony. That's what we're seeing here. We're seeing someone who saw this with his own eyes and is communicating the fact that it's impossible for the body to have been stolen. Grave robbers would have never taken the time to be so tidy. That's why we learn in Luke 24, 12 that with all of this scenery here, it says that Peter saw and marveled. And then John chapter 20, verse 8 says, John saw and believed. Peter saw and marveled. John saw in John 20, verse 8, and believed. But in our text, we learn that seeing is not always believing. Peter saw and marveled. John saw and believed. Mary saw and she wept. 
She returns to the tomb. She's bereft. And she peers inside and she sees evidently what Peter and John did not see. The scripture says two angels in white. One seated at the head of the slab, the other seated at the foot of the slab. Pause there. Two angels at either end with space in between. Question. What piece of furniture in the tabernacle does that remind you of? More later on that. The angels look at Mary. Why are you weeping? She says, they've taken away the Lord, and I don't know where they put him. I mean, she still thinks the body's been stolen. I mean, she just fixed on that thought. No, that's what happened, she believes. They not only killed him, they stole the corpse. Verse 14 says, having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. But she didn't know it was Jesus. Jesus asked, Madam, Madam, that's what that word woman means. Madam, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? See, see Mary thinks he's the gardener. <laughs> well, unwittingly she's right. Christ is the gardener of the new Eden. And he's preparing a place for us in the final garden. But right now, she just can't see it. Did you take him? Did you take him? If you, if you took him, tell me where he is and I'll go get him. How's she going to do that? What is she going to do? Put him in a fireman's carry and bring him back? What? I mean, how, how is it possible to be looking at Jesus right in the eye and yet not see that it's Jesus? Well, think about it. I mean, why do we go to cemeteries? We go to lay flowers. We go to remember. We go to make connections to pay respects. We go to find comfort. We go to remember. But I'll tell you why we don't go there. We don't go there expecting resurrection. No one visits a grave because they expect someone to rise from it. That said... Jesus explicitly told his disciples four separate times that he would go to Jerusalem, that the Romans would arrest him, then flog him, then crucify him, and then on the third day he would rise from the dead. I mean, that's Matthew 16 and 21. That's Matthew 17 and 22. That's Matthew 20 and 17. And that's Matthew 26 and 1. Now, I mean, had you heard Jesus say four separate times what he was going to do, and then in addition to that, witnessing all of the miracles that he performed, including raising the dead, wouldn't you at least be a little curious? Yet Sunday morning, none of the apostles said, hey, it, it's Sunday morning, let's go check it out. No, no, no. All of the apostles on that first Easter morning hit the snooze button. That's what happened. And Mary is there, but she's there to finish embalming his corpse. I mean, her grief has blinded 
her from the real Jesus, this, this grief grounded in earthly expectations. And right at the moment, those expectations had overruled everything, everything to the degree that she's there right in front looking at Jesus in the eye, asking him where he put himself. Right? Tell me where you put yourself and I'll go get you. You know who she reminds me of? Me. That's me. Is that not us? I mean, the reason why she didn't see Jesus when he was standing in front of her is the same reason we don't, and it's this. Grand hopes, small Messiah. She, she was passionately pursuing a pint-sized Christ. And we do that. If we're going to be honest, we do that. God, I want you to answer my prayers. God, get me that job. Heal my disease. Fix my child. Answer me. And if Christ doesn't answer to our satisfaction, well, then maybe he's not who we thought he was. Well, he's not. That's the point. In Romans chapter 3, verse 10, Paul says, no one seeks for God and he doesn't mean that no one seeks spirituality or matters of the divine. No, it, what he means is that no one seeks the true God because instead we want a God who fits into our little boxes. We, we want a God who agrees with us, a God who cooperates. God, I wish you would just cooperate with me. Sometimes you just got to say something out loud to realize how silly it sounds. We want a God who doesn't contradict our personal narratives. Mary's picture of Jesus did not fit the real Jesus standing before her. Grand hopes, small Messiah. And uh, Jesus, like the angels, asked, Madam, why are you weeping? But then he asked the key question, whom are you seeking what Jesus are you seeking today? His question to her is his question to us. It's easy to reach the point, you know, where we think we figured God out, and the pa we pastor types are the worst offenders at that. Because, you know, we get to the point where I've read all the commentaries, and I've looked at the original language, and I've diagrammed the sentences, and... You know, I just, I, I've got God figured out. I've broken the code. I chart his tendencies. God's a computer. We push all the right buttons, insert the right data. God is exactly who we thought he was. No variations, no alterations. God's a jukebox. Insert tithe, punch in the right numbers, and bam, the divine music that I've requested plays and fills the room. Anybody here think they've got God figured out? Anybody here think they've got God captured on a flow chart, got all the algorithms frozen on a flannel board. Grand hopes, small Messiah. I think that's what keeps us from seeing God. That's question number one. Hmm. Well, here's question number two. What's Jesus do about that? You see, here's the beauty of the gospel. Mary's never going to get it on her own. She's not. 
Well, she needs help. And that's the gospel. Because her awakening does not rely on the slender thread of her effort, but the unbreakable beam of Christ's grace. Jesus breaks through her grief to give her faith. And so here's our big idea. Here it is. Here it is. When our grand hopes fail, Christ calls with irresistible mercy. Would you say that with me? Here we go. When our grand hopes fail, Christ calls with irresistible mercy. Thanks be to God. God, thank you that you let my grand, puny hope fail so that you can break through with irresistible mercy. And that's exactly what happens here. John chapter 10, verse 3 says, The good shepherd calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And so Jesus looks at her and says, Miriam, Miriam. Oh, well, that's an ancient name is what it is. It's the name of Moses' sister who sang her wild song of triumph after witnessing Israel's God defeat Egypt in the waters of the Red Sea. And here in John chapter 20, Jesus is the new Moses who has led the way through the dark waters of death and now he's leading us home to the promised land and he wants his sister to sing again. Thanks be to God. Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. The corpse she'd come to embalm spoke. And she grabs him. He's no ghost. He's no floating spirit. She's beholding a resurrection body, not a resuscitated body but an imperishable body. And she grabs him and she holds him and she keeps holding him. Okay, Mary, okay, okay. You can let go now. Listen, there's work to do. We have work to do now. I'm in the process of ascending to my Father and I will be with you, but, but not like before. And what I need you to do right here, right now, is go to my brothers, he says. Verse 17, Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to, and notice what Jesus says. He, he doesn't say, go to those traitors or go to those cowards. Or go to those deniers. What's he say? Go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. So before, when Jesus spoke of the Father, he would speak of our Father. Here, though, he says, my Father and your Father, my God and your God. See, oh, this is the voice of mercy whose message is not, now I'm ascending, and when I do, I'll be in a galaxy far, far away, so let's make the best use of the time while we can. No, 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 no. No, the message is this. Mary, the revolution has begun. I am returning to my Father, and soon I will send my Spirit upon you, and trust me, when that occurs, I will be closer to you then than I am now. 
So Jesus' ascension does not mean his absence. It means his sovereignty. It's a whole new world now. Jesus is God's son by nature and by right. And we are his sons and daughters by adoption and by mercy. On that Old Testament furniture that I told you about, huh? The mercy seat. That's what it's called. The mercy seat covering the Ark of the Covenant. And Christ has inaugurated the new covenant by mercy. His mercy broke through and commissioned this dear woman. His mercy called, and she who came to the tomb as a mortician left as a missionary. The very first missionary. Mary was the first to announce the good news of the resurrection. And so for one brief moment, she is the church. And she's been called the apostle to the apostles. Yes. She who came to embalm the body of Christ heard the voice of mercy and she turned. She turned. And she heard the voice of Jesus. And you know, whenever God calls us, he commissions us. He puts us to work. And, and we see this all throughout the Bible. The God who calls is the God who commissions. That's why in Genesis 22, 11, God says, Abraham, Abraham, here I am. Genesis 46, 2, Jacob, Jacob, here I am. Exodus 3, 4, Moses, Moses, here I am. 1 Samuel 3.11, Samuel, Samuel, here I am. Luke 10.41, Martha, Martha. Acts 9.4, Saul, Saul. Last week we spoke of Christ calling Lazarus from the tomb. Lazarus, come forth. I have a question for us. When Christ called Lazarus, did he have a choice? Could Lazarus have said, nah, to the king? When God said, let there be light, did the light have any choice about the matter? Could the light have said no? John began his gospel echoing the book of Genesis. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were made through him, and without him not anything made that was made. This is the Word made flesh. This is the God who raises the dead. This is the Word who calls into existence the things that do not exist. This is Jesus Christ, the Word incarnate, who dwelt among us full of grace and truth. And our text today tells of the Creator King who mercifully called Mary and commissioned her as his first ambassador. And she went, she followed through, verse 18. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. To God be the glory. The, the, mor the morning was dark. Mary was in the dark. 
And just when it couldn't get any worse, that's when it got better. Isn't it just like God to show up at a place where everybody expects death? And the place to grieve, by grace, became the place of mercy. And I love this thought. I love this thought. In the Garden of Eden, a woman was questioned by a snake, and what followed was grief. Here, in the Garden of Easter, a woman was questioned by the king, and what followed was grace. Thank you, Jesus. At some point in time last week, when you were at your lowest, when life bottomed out, there's the assumption, I'm on my own. I am all alone, and I came here to say that even in those times, God is closer than you think. You, you may have grand hopes in a small Messiah, but Jesus isn't small. He's calling. He met Mary in her darkest hour at, her most, at the most unexpected place and gave her the greatest news on earth. Mary, Magdalene, she who had once been possessed by demons, her body had once been a condo for seven demons. Now, I could be wrong, but you don't become demon-possessed simply by skipping Sunday school. But Jesus called her. And he calls people that others would long ago have written off. And some of you may be here today thinking, you know, if God knew the real me, if God knew the real me, if he only knew, let me break the news. He already does. He knows your past. He knows your history. He knows your failures. He knows what once possessed you. Some of you are here right now, and, and you, you, you're possessed by stuff. You name it. You fill in the blank. You're possessed by greed, possessed by chemicals, possessed by money, possessed by success, possessed by guilt, possessed by self-righteousness. But God is calling you. He's calling you right here right now and you may you may you may say well how do i know that he's calling me well you're here this morning aren't you you came i'm here to speak on behalf of the one who is closer than you think faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of god let him turn your garden of grief into a garden of grace. Let him turn your mourning into missionary dancing. Wake up, O oh sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Amen? Amen. Amen. Would you bow your